Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. In this episode of Nature Works Podcast, I'm speaking with Zach Bolks, who's the co-founder and the international volunteer coordinator for North Bali Reef Conservation. Zach's a PhD student and lives in a remote part of Bali where he's enabling communities to come to terms with, manage and also regenerate the natural ecosystems with a focus on coral reefs and restoring coral reefs using man-made structures. They're also doing incredible work with cleaning up the garbage up there and keeping the oceans cleaner and making them a better place for a whole variety of fish life. We discuss what it's like at the young tender age of 26 to be running such an organisation, living in remote parts of the world rather than partying back in his home country of the UK, and also the meaningfulness of working with over 50 volunteers at a time coming from all over the world who come to basically find themselves to connect with the land here in Bali and more importantly doing their part to protect and restore and sustain the natural world. Now if you enjoyed this episode and others please share with like-minded folks who actually give a crap about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast is as always free of sponsors or advertising And our aim really is to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can all help protect, restore and regenerate this natural world that we and our children and our children's children will rely on. So um, how long have you been in Bali? I've been in Bali. I've been coming back and forth in Bali since 2017. Um, My family live in the UK. So I go back and forth quite a lot. um, But probably in total, I spent three years living here. And what, what brought you here? Kuta? <laughs> Cheap package holidays um, with Australians? Yeah, uh, that was definitely an appeal. Yeah, I won't lie. Um, <laughs> oh, it was? Okay, all right. I thought well, you were well, going to spit on me. <laughs> um, I came here when I was 18 years old. It was like a, a bit of a that sort of trip. Um, wanted to go surfing, hang out with friends, that sort of thing. I also came, I visited the north of Bali, which is now where I live. Um, and I taught some kids how to play drums in the school there so i i wanted to give something back rather than just having a typical bali holiday uh drinking lots of fintang kuta and surfing too much so i did that for a little bit for about a month i believe um i bought a drum kit in denpasar and took it up to the north to a school and every parent's nightmare by the way yeah i know uh, I'm, not, I'm not when sure your child buys, buys a drum yeah. kit don't mention that to my kids i think i was quite unpopular in the village <laughs> uh, the kids loved me but the parents yeah. maybe not so much i can imagine so yeah since then that was when was that 2017 or so um i've been coming back and so forth. you came here as a tourist basically yeah. you didn't come here to save the reefs and no that wasn't my original intention but um, you are a marine biologist mm-hmm, that's and correct have you, i didn't ask before but you've got your phd or you're doing a PhD? i'm doing my phd right now yeah. and what's um, that in marine biology um specifically focused on coral conservation in indonesia so yeah um i'm halfway through my phd now so far so good it can be quite uh an experience doing a phd somewhere so remote especially in north bali where i, I live very little wi-fi phone signal um and also lack of mentors I would imagine. lack of mentors yeah because that's so, a big deal in doing a phd it is it? yeah it is um so it's got its pros and cons doing a phd in bali and overall i definitely cannot complain but 
and there's certain things that make it make it a challenge as well and why are you doing a phd what's that for why am i doing a phd um so i'm doing a phd a lot of extra work it's a lot of extra work um i'm doing a phd because i'm interested in studying the marine environment specifically the marine environment that my project has been aiming to improve since we, we since we started in 2017 um it's important for me to do research on the work that we're doing to make sure it's effective um to make sure it's it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and so that's the first reason i'm doing a phd also because um i like to think that the research i'm doing is not only important on a local scale proving that the artificial reefs and the conservation work we're doing is valuable and important but also on an international scale as well proving that there are solutions to restoring reefs that have been degraded in the past. You know Steve Box? Steve Box. I interviewed him. He was my in fact he was the second person yeah. in this room. Yeah, I had I had right. a phone call with him a few months ago. We had a we had a great He's chat. A PhD, yeah. a specialist in coral, in fact. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. guy. Yeah, Brilliant. no, we we had a we had a phone call recently. Um That's who you should get to mentor you. I'll yeah, yeah. Put a word in for you if you like. <laughs> gonna be, we're going to be working with him on some projects in Okay. Egypt. Yeah. No, it's I've I've set up that initial connection with him. Um I hope I'm talking about the right person. He's he's the guy that's done some of the Mars projects and stuff. I oh, I don't. Uh, as in Mars chocolate. Yeah. Um, oh, that rings a bell. Actually, Mars do like a coral yeah. conservation project. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Guy. I'm yeah, glad yeah. I'm talking yeah, about yeah, the right yeah. person. It's the same guy. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're doing. So so your your interest is in coral. Mm-hmm. Where did that stem from? So you came here to become a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, now you, and now you do a PhD in coral. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk. Talk me through the the, uh, the the bridge of time yeah. and space yeah, that quite broad, led from right? one to the other. How the hell did you end up yeah. uh, where you are now? So, so, so when I originally came to Bali, I I was doing my undergraduate degree. I definitely wasn't an expert in coral conservation, but been studying marine biology a little bit, and uh, obviously had an interest and a passion for it. So um, that was my that was my underlying goal in life to try and do something that would protect the marine environment. Although I had no idea how what, come. I mean, what's your connection mm. to the ocean? You, you're I've from Bournemouth, up, aren't you? Uh, I study in so, Bournemouth. Oh, you study in Bournemouth. Uh, I actually originally grew up in, near London, um, but spent most of my time in Cornwall um, from my later years. Right. Um, I'm only 25 now, so um, quite a lot of that time spent here. But when I, whenever I'm back in the UK, I try and spend as much time on the coast, especially in Cornwall, as I can. Um, but was it Jacques Cousteau movies or <laughs> David Attenborough be talking yeah, from a boat or something? Um, I think it was just spending as much time in the ocean as possible. Um, you surf? Yeah, yeah, I'm a surfer. So I guess the the passion came from surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that started um, to drive my interest in marine the marine environment. And after I first came to Bali in 2017, I met... So so in the village where I was teaching drums, it's, the village is called Tianyar, which is in Karangasam in northeast Bali. Not too far from Talambin or Ahmed, if you if you know it. Mm-hmm. I went to Ahmed to see the dolphins. Yeah, yeah. That was an in- incredible experience. We went out. There were fifty boats out. Yeah, it's awful, right? Yeah, awful. They yeah. chased the dolphins, yeah. and I said to the guy, "We're not being yeah. a part of this. Turn yeah. around. I'll pay you. No problem. Let's yeah. go snorkeling." Yeah, yeah. So we went snorkeling, and an hour later, I popped up, and he said, "Hey, they've all gone. The I'll dolph- take you back. No, all oh, the boats. Oh, oh, right. Okay. So we went back out. Yeah. And we had a pod." Or multiple pods, I don't know, but yeah. hundreds of dolphins to ourselves. Right, okay. and by to ourselves, I mean we were literally we were we were cruising over the surface, holding on to these sort of trapeze bars. Yeah, with dolphins swimming all around us. And yeah, it was in. 
incredible. It's amazing. And you, you don't need to chase them. They come, no, you to, don't they come to, to you if exactly. you, if you if you leave them alone. Yeah. We didn't chase any of them. We yeah. just we just, he went round in circles and mm. they and they allowed us to be present mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. But bef- ah, it looked like a hunt before. Mm-hmm. I mean it is essentially a hunt, right? Yeah, yeah. God knows what it does to disturb their breeding. Yeah, and, you cannot imagine. Else. Um there is some research being done on that at the moment and I guess this is kind of going down a different track, but yeah, there's definitely a lack of management and um We'll get on to that. But yeah, so you went to, T- to Tianmar, isn't it? Tianyard. Yeah. Tianyard. Uh, um, yeah, which I'd never heard of until I looked at your website. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a remote village in the middle of nowhere. Um, I want to see it because it says it's not been touched by tourism. Yeah. And I can't imagine anywhere in Bali it's not been touched yeah, by tourism. Yeah. And that's not a lie. It really is. Um, yeah. You, you never really see any tourists there. Um, wow. It's, 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 it's very special like that. And so I was originally there, like I said, um, several years ago when I was a little boy. <laughs> Um, teaching drums in the school there, and I met the founder of a local school. The school is a it's a yayasan, so it's a foundation, it's a learning centre for kids. Uh, it's not like a government owned school or anything like that. Uh, a local person called Ketut, and Ketut comes from a family of fishermen, and um, we got chatting um, about the marine environment, about conservation a little bit, things like that, and I discussed my interests with him. And he explained to me how the area of reef right in front of his house that he remembers as a kid being really healthy and full with life has, is now empty with, with nothing there. Um, not even any corals, not anything, not even any fish. Um, because for multiple reasons, this area of reef got degraded. Um, there's a lot of reasons, and I think nobody knows exactly why it's happened several decades ago so but it can't be blamed on tourism because there's no tourism it's not tourism so it's all local mismanagement basically yes uh it's definitely not tourism um pollution unfo- as well or? yeah so unfortunately tourism does affect a lot of reefs in bali but it's not the reason for the degrade degradation of these reefs um it, it's a mixture of boat anchoring cor- coral harvesting overfishing using unsustainable fishing methods um things like that pollution as well um because they use some of the coral in in masonry work, don't That's they? That's right, yeah. So um, I'm not sure how popular it is anymore, and it's definitely frowned upon in Bali and Indonesia, but it's stopped now. But what used to happen is coral would be mined, um, literally taken out taken out the sea, ground into a fine paste, which is used as the calcium carbonate is used for building materials, um, which is obviously you'd awful. Actually have, you'd actually have to change the term from mine because mining is for an innate object. Whereas corals are living yeah. species. Yeah, right. right? That's a good Just point. Just because it has a yeah. hard shell. Yeah. You can't say it's a mining. It's more of a, <laughs> it's a slaughter. So yeah. Coral is slaughtered for the use of these. That's actually more that, an appropriate. Yeah, so. I, I like I like that. that um... yeah, no mining going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So anyway, this 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 one area straight in, out in front of Kadut's house is, has been destroyed. Um, as you can imagine a, what used to be a really healthy coral reef, like we have many in Bali, um, it's turned to an empty area with void of anything um which is obviously sad from a biodiversity point of view but also sad from a point of view of a local person a fisherman that relies on on a healthy coral reef and relies on having their having the ecosystem in front of them supported and healthy so we got chatting and one thing led to another one thing led to another and um we basically decided to start north bali reef conservation which is an ngo um a non-profit ngo that we founded in 2017. So actually it's coming up to our fifth birthday uh, next month. So yeah, that's that's the story of how we started. We wanted to bring life back to the area that previously got destroyed. And we know that, or I know from a personal level, that 
the area we're working in has potential to be a healthy biodiverse coral reef because in other parts of the re other reefs in Tianyard in the village where we're working there are amazing healthy reefs that haven't been degraded they've been more protected so from a biodiversity from an ecological point of view we knew that we know that we can bring life back to the area um, we just had to figure out how so um, but your friend Katut yeah is um, not unique but unusual in that here what I've seen from two years of living here is when you talk to local people about the ecological issues for us mostly with our company with nature works it's the farm mm. and talking about how farming using herbicides pesticides um uh urea etc is destroying the local mm -hmm. ecosystem and flooding the fields also does that mm -hmm. um and they flood the fields so that other plants and biodiversity can't come through because rice is the only plant that really can handle the flooded especially in when the water heats up rice is resilient enough to to mm. handle that anyway it's a bit of an ecological disaster mm. there's a disconnect between our very western view of let's save the planet or at least let's save our little part of it or if not sounding i don't want to sound too cliched with save the planet i am i'm over exaggerating it but doing our best to restore there's a big disconnect between a lot of what the locals view as important or even worth bothering with it is very rare. I love the Balinese people more than anywhere I've ever lived in my life. But it's very rare to find people who actually, they'll admit that they've seen enormous changes and they might, and they'll be sad about the fact that there's no fish in the ocean, there's the corals destroyed, or that the Subak streams are full of garbage. But they don't want to do anything about it. Uh, your your co-founder, what what's his... Um, I mean, does he stand out to you as unique in the community? Or is it that further into these less touristy areas where money is maybe not the same priority as it is for everyone who lives in these areas, are people more connected to the land and they're more willing and able to do something about it? What I guess the question actually is, because I'm not giving I'm not giving you a well formed question, is how supportive is the community in this remote area? Of being wanting to restore nature because it's not in these areas like Changu and Chamagi where everyone's really focused on getting their dollars out of the tourists mm. as fast as they can because they don't know when there's going to be another COVID right mm -hmm. um, yeah that's the yeah no it's a good question um, so firstly Kadut Pakadut is definitely unique in this way um, very unique in having that ambition and that drive to take the risk and do something that nobody else has done and these these kind of projects especially the more rural you go in indonesia are very unusual um it's also important for me to mention that you i, I definitely agree with you with what you're saying about um the lack of desire to protect the environment from many not all but a lot of local people but i think from my experience that comes down to lack of education mm. um from from my experience a lot of people we're working with once they start to understand why it's important to protect the environment, the the their passion is is it's inspiring, and I have noticed that. So, answering your question more directly, how supportive are the community of the work we're doing? <clears throat> it started with quite limited support. Um, actually, actually, pretty limited. Um, we we wanted to get 
the fishermen involved with our project because we're a conservation project, a marine conservation project, working with communities to restore reefs. But the only way we can do that is by eliminating the initial problem. There's no point doing a conservation project if the same thing is going to happen again. And this doesn't just apply for to coral conservation, but it's anything. You can't set up a rhino conservation project if the locals are still killing rhinos. You know, it's, it's the same thing with corals. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So from that point of view, um, it was really important for us to get them on board. And we there's no way we could set up a conservation project without them. So... When when we originally had this idea, we we thought, hey, we wanna we wanna set up a coral conservation project, but we need to get the community on board. We had a few passionate local fishermen who were interested in 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 the idea and thought this could be really really good. This could be successful, um, but it was limited. So we we had the idea to <laughs> we had the idea to get them on board by printing everybody T-shirts with their names on. Uh, we wanted to bring together a community of fishermen. And make it empower them to create a project. I didn't want it to be some some bule, some white guy coming along and telling fishermen, "Hey, you can't do that. Mm. You can't do that." I'm sure you you agree. Never, never you, works. You, you agree from yeah, what everything you're absolutely. doing here that that doesn't work. Um, and it had to be something that is it's them empowered to make the change. So we printed T-shirts out for everybody with their names on and with the logos on. Gave them to all the fishers in the community. Sounds like a silly idea, but it actually worked really well. Um, T-shirts are like gold when it comes to things like this, um, and that started to make them think like, "Hey, actually, this I'm part of a community of people working together to restore restore coral reefs, and that's pretty cool." Um, didn't work for everybody. God, I'm an idiot. I need to get T-shirts <laughs> you, on all you, the local farmers. Yeah, don't it, I? I'm it, serious, man. It, it works well. It works. Yeah, well. No, I get it. Especially yeah. if you print the names on the T-shirts. That, that's that's extra yeah. cool as well. Um, I mean, I should have them on our three. <laughs> we have three full-time farmers. Yeah, who now irrespective of whether it's their role that day are picking up garbage wherever mm-hmm. they see it mm-hmm. yeah. and i i heard a, a short story the other day of um so there were some kids sat along the side of the subac mm-hmm. for those who don't know what subac is it's a term with in this we're using it as a term for the streams here that feed all of the rice paddy fields the subac is actually the rice paddies the pathways the management and the water system as well but in this case we're talking about the streams that that come into uh, the rice paddy fields and they're typically horror shows of plastic and garbage and diapers and everything else we're pulling out about 50 pounds a day of plastic and garbage and initially after three farmers who i'm so i'm told now delight in coming here they're meant to be on holiday today but they've come into mm. work because they prefer being here than they do at home <laughs> that's always a good sign <laughs> yeah right um but there were three kids sat watching them work the other day and one of the kids was drinking a milk carton and threw it into the subac after he'd finished. Mm. This is a typical... Which is quite, age, quite standard, standard practice. Standard, yeah. yeah, because that's their garbage system. Yeah. Because they don't, they, they don't see it. And they're, they're not looking at videos of the mm. Great Pacific Garbage mm-hmm. Patch. They're not looking at videos of to- uh, turtles with straws in their nose. They're not looking at videos of, of turtles eating plastic bags against jellyfish and so on and so on. They live in a very small world. Anyway... Our, one of our farmers looked up and saw the kid throw it in and immediately jumped to the defense of the subak, walked over. And, you know, this is not on his payroll. He doesn't have to do any of this. And this was actually we're only in the first three weeks of him working here and, and lectured the kids, said, do you not see what we're trying to do here? Yeah. You know, 
you should be ashamed of yourself or yeah. something along those lines yeah, in the, yeah. and got the kid to get back in the water pick <laughs> it out <laughs> yeah. and then take it to our, one of our big garbage bags yeah. over there. And that's, that's great that's, it, yeah. it's, it's lovely for you to see things and like that right? and now yeah. when I, I go in and I observe I'm doing my bit on the farm and I'm observing them peripherally mm-hmm. so they know I'm not I mean I'm not spying on them but I'm curious and also we do have cameras <laughs> on the land as well um, and I see them picking it up off their own mm. Mm-hmm. Um, volition you know they're yeah. not being forced to do it and it's that's all all that's taken is a few weeks of sharing a vision with them mm-hmm. so I get that but the t-shirt thing is genius all mm. of my staff are going to be in t-shirts yeah. in the next week yeah yeah it's a good idea <laughs> nature works t-shirt with something about cleaning the, yeah. the suwak and then every farmer in the region can yeah. get one of these tell me about um, Tianyo because mm. uh, you're saying that it's untouched by tourism mm. what does that actually look like in Bali because yeah. right here we feel like we're you know, we're just out of Changu enough that we don't get that mm. many people here. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I noticed that too when I was driving but it is, here. But it is still developing there. Yeah. You know, and the green belt areas that surround our home that you just saw the view, that apparently that's going to be changed to yellow belt mm. and then red belt so they can build whatever they want on mm. it. Um, you can't stop progress here. But I haven't seen any of, of Bali uh, pre-tourism mm. so i'm fascinated what it looks like and what it what the differences are up there yeah um it's got its pros and its cons i guess um there's no pepitos is there there's no pepitos that's Defi- a supermarket chain by there's the way, definitely no pepitos we only we had our first indomaret which was built about six to eight months ago before then there wasn't even indomaret um, so you can get really garbage <laughs> wafers <laughs> yeah. um yeah so it's 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 beautiful it's untouched it's well untouched from tourism um it's a, it's a really great place to live um however it's not I, mean, I don't want to paint this picture that it's some sort of perfect tropical paradise as well it's got a lot of problems in terms of waste management mm. there's no waste management there at at all what do they do burn it and throw it in the ocean yeah for yeah basically that's correct um we've just, we've recently set up a plastic recycling center which is a pretty low scale at the moment um but yeah, you, you here you probably have trucks coming and taking the trash away, right? We oh. do, and we're assured that when we pay for the extra recycling, as we do, that mm. it's taken away and recycled. But we've also heard horror stories but that it's not, it's not and they the take the money truck. and they yeah. throw it in the same truck and it all gets burned or landfill. Or, yeah. But landfill's still better than yeah. them throwing it in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, it is. And probably to, to a Western audience hearing that, that might sound quite shocking, but... Even from the point of view we're looking at, burning it is better than throwing it in the ocean. Um, at least not from a health point of view. Uh, it's, it's awful to burn mm. trash, especially plastic. Um, but yeah, that this is how undeveloped it is. Um, so I'm just being honest with you. I, mm. I can't paint. A, I see it every day. Yeah, yeah. I can't paint this is some perfect picture of this ideal tropical paradise because it's not that. Um, well, yeah. The, the the problem is, is that, and I've had this conversation with Balinese people, mm-hmm. Um so where our land sits, there are houses that back onto it. Showed you these earlier. Mm. Until I put the cameras up. Yeah. And and I got approval from the houses there to put the camera up. I didn't right. just come in and do my, my yeah. suspicious booty <clears throat> thing. I yeah, got approval yeah. from the Subak system group, from the Banjar, which is the local kind of council elders, spiritual leaders of the re- of the area we live in. I got agreement from everyone that it was good to put that camera up. And so um, all of the garbage that was going in from the houses adjacent has stopped mm-hmm. because you know, people know they can't do it. 
Although I'm told there's more garbage now being put into another section oh, of the wow. subac okay. further down. Where well, there's no cameras. There's no cameras. And we're going to address that in the next <laughs> Put more cameras up. <laughs> put more cameras up. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I think the, the camera piece works great for monitoring our farm. Yeah. But it's, it's not a solution. You can't put cameras up across the whole island. Can you? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the problem is, is that plastic in Indonesia is so new, mm-hmm. like 30 mm-hmm. something years old, in 40 yeah. years old in, in Bali. In the scale that it's at now is 15, 20 years old, where everyone's using, you know, disposable single-use plastics. Prior to that, all of the waste that would come out of a house was fine to throw in the stream because mm-hmm. it was just banana it was leaves, plant matter and, and yeah, banana yeah, leaves yeah. and rice. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, it's not ideal. It still ends up compost or fermenting and rotting in the ocean, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, compared, to, compared to plastic. Compared to plastic, yeah. it's not going to break down. Mm-hmm. And so it... It, it was typical for the average Balinese householder to just go out the back and throw all of their household waste and their mm. shit and everything else just in the subak. And that gets filtered. And a lot of it would have gone directly into the into the rice paddy fields mm-hmm. as well, but it was broken down, maybe even provided extra composting material. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's all plastic and it goes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a behavioral change mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's difficult to criticize people because they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. In the, you're too young to know this, but in the 80s and early 90s in the UK, we had a terrible, certainly late 80s, terrible garbage problem. Mm. In the poor area of Bristol where I grew up, there was plastic in the streets and dog ends and dog shit. And, Mm. you know, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. And the government, rightly so, would that have been under Margaret Thatcher? Someone like that. (laughs) John Major. um, They put out a huge advertising campaign shaming people Mm. for for dropping garbage. And now as a kid of about seven or eight years old, as I was, that all of a sudden we were policing each other, mm. even in the school playgrounds. Right. I remember when we got our first yeah. bins in the school playgrounds. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where it was going before that, mm-hmm. but there was garbage in the school playground. Right, okay, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so it requires something of that level. The problem is, back then we had four channels. We might have only had three, actually, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV. Right. ITV would have been the only commercial channel. Mm. And so um, people watch the ads. Mm. Nowadays, what are you are going to do? Everyone's watching their media across mm. endless channels, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. You can't impose it upon people. So you're going to have to do billboards or you're going to have to do... So it's a difficult mm-hmm. challenge to yeah. to to fix to say the least. So so it's probably this is a good point for me to discuss this. So I've just finished a research project as part of my PhD working with some social scientists in Bali to assess these issues and to figure out the best way to generate pro-environmental behaviors. That's what we call it. A pro-environmental behavior is uh, a behavior that's going to encourage somebody to do something to care for the environment. So so it's a pretty broad term, pro-environmental behavior. Um, It can be something as simple as turning off your light bulb, turning off your lights when you leave the room. Mm It can be something as simple as picking up plastic on the beach, um, but it also goes deeper than that. Um, it can be managing your own waste at home or um, doing more even, um, being actively involved in coral conservation work in our, from our point of view. So, we're, so we've just finished a research project looking at this. Um, the paper has recently just been submitted for publication, which is exciting for me because it, it was a long project and it took a long time. How long did it take? Um, the whole thing took about a year. Um, Tell us the structure of the of the research. How, yeah. So, how, how do you even start that kind of? Yeah. Paper? So, so we we used Tianyard, the village that I live in, as a case study, um, looking at how 
the community, we interviewed members of the community, a, a broad member, a broad range of the community from village leaders through to the community, through to fishermen groups, through to fish sellers in the market. Basically every different um, occupation that you can imagine we we interviewed through a mixture of one-to-one interviews through to focus groups, um, trying to get an understanding of how well projects like this can generate pro-environmental behaviours in the village and also what encourages them to to, to do this. Um, so lack of education, as I mentioned, is a big thing. Um, education doesn't need to be formal as well. So it's important for me to mention that it doesn't need to be kids sitting down in the classroom and being told by their teacher not to throw their plastic in the sea. Um, it can be a lot more informal than that. Um, it can be through what well, one thing that we find is a very successful and um, important way that environmental change can be can be had is through social media. So we interview kids as well in the study, and most of the kids, when I say kids, they're like between the ages of twelve to eighteen. So I probably shouldn't use the word kids really, but um, you know what I mean. And one of the main ways they get information about the environment is through social media, especially Instagram, and we really do notice that these kids generate, sorry, these kids demonstrate much better pro-environmental behaviours than the adults in the village. So you mentioned it briefly about using phones and Instagram earlier and stuff like that. So so that's a big thing, um, which is quite a surprise for me. And that wasn't something I was expecting to find from the research. Um, as you mentioned here, Bali is an island of tourism. It's, it's the hub of tourism in Indonesia. And people, have, regardless of where you are on the island, people grow up kind of hoping to get a job in tourism at least where i live it's it's seen as the that's that's the successful career if you make it in tourism and we're in the process now of developing tnr as an ecotourism destination uh it's very very early stages but it seems that the the vision of an ecotourism destination is one thing that's really uh, a really important factor in making local people want to care for the environment so in, in some ways that's kind of sad because Ultimately, that comes down to money, um, which can be an issue when there's a pandemic. Um, there's also a contradiction. In yeah. Eco-tourism is, is actually a contradiction in itself. Yeah. In it, you're better off not having any tourism in the area. Yeah. Unless that tourism influences the local behaviours, yeah. like you're saying, in yeah. a way that stops yeah. the, the local damage. Yeah. What you have to be careful of is that the even the best-intended eco-tourists aren't adding to that damage you know you're quadrupling the plastic load. yeah exactly that's a big issue in bali the the amount of waste that tourists have compared to locals specifically plastic waste they mostly eat, and I, I mean i know this from experience they mostly eat rice mm-hmm. vegetables a little bit of fish and meat and mm-hmm. okay the, there's a lot of packet foods that are ingested these days but nowhere near as much as as we eat yeah. from I mean, the imported foods, imported foods, and from the fancy supermarkets and the stuff we can't exist without. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so so that's also important to mention that it's 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 us that are causing an issue as well. When when I say us, I mean uh, non Balinese or non local people living here. Um, Yeah, and we, from what I can see at the moment, and please correct me if you know counter examples of this, mm -hmm. is that all of the majority of the initiatives, this is why I mentioned your friend Katut as being, mm. as you said, rightly so, unique. He's not unique, but he's in a very small minority. Mm-hmm. Most of the initiatives are taken by mm. local, uh, by um, non-locals coming in mm. and then getting the will and the support of the, of the locals. Mm. I think many Balinese people find it hard to initiate mm-hmm. these kind of ideas. They don't have the same um, thinking processes 
that we do mm. around creating something that could be a legacy, it's good around mm -hmm. creating something that could have maximum impact. But once you actually give them a line of sight on it, then you get brilliant people involved mm, and, they, and they get yeah. hugely motivated. Hugely motivated and hugely important as well. Um, the work that we're doing, there's absolutely no way it could have been possible without Katut and the other members of the community that we work with. It's important for me to emphasize that mm. because, yeah, our project would not have been at all successful without it. Um, and that's something that I highlighted from my re most recent research project as well. You need local leaders and local um, important local people to support these projects because without it, um, it's not gonna it's not gonna be supported by the community. Um, fortunately, we're lucky to have this support with our project, not just from Bakatut, but also from local village leaders, um, government people as well, government at a local scale. I mean. Um, these are also important factors that are really going to make a difference in supporting environmental behaviours. So you so you found that social media helps to influence the younger generation to take more care mm -hmm. of the environment. You're looking at turning Tianya into a an eco tourist destination. Where do you even start with that? I mean, mm. what is is it going to be a specific target audience who want to come and see artificial reefs mm. or reef restoration yeah bas basically that's correct so so my program north bali reef conservation um is a international volunteering program too uh, it's now high season in bali which is great because we're we're utilizing this high season to get a lot of volunteers who come I mean, high help. season of tourists high season of tourists. Yeah. sorry yeah um otherwise known as silly season silly season crazy season whatever you <laughs> want to call it and it, it is silly and crazy um but it has its benefits as well when these tourists, in our case, international volunteers are coming to help with our project. Um, so we've now got accommodation for about 50 volunteers and we're pretty full for the rest of the summer now. Wow, um, bravo. Yeah. Um, and which countries are predominantly coming from? Um, actually, we get a lot from England, um, Europe. Yeah, they want to get out of the weather, don't they? <laughs> I think that's what it is, yeah. Um, England, Europe, European countries and also the States. That's that's the main, these are the main countries. Um, so in cases like this, I know you said ecotourism is quite, quite controversial, um, but when these tourists, if you can call them that, are coming to help directly with a cause that's doing great work for the environment, it doesn't, doesn't have to be for the environment, it can be a social cause too, um, it can be pretty broad, but when these tourists are doing great work that's clearly influencing their environment, their local environment, this is a positive thing and it's something we've really noticed. And like I said about the importance of local people, we also couldn't do this work without the the tourists that come to our program and support the the work that we're doing. What's the culture shock like for these people coming mm, in? Yeah, because like I said, it's not Changu. Where They're not can... coming into the fancy supermarkets yeah. and massage tables <laughs> of, of Changu. No? Where, where you can't... And uh, cafes and restaurants you, everywhere. You can't go and get a... A, a latte for 50k exactly 50K which is, is about two pound 50 yeah so, exactly oh, yeah four three or four dollars yeah the lattes here are almost as expensive as a decent meal yeah right? it's yeah. ridiculous the coffee the the asymmetry in cost of coffee versus food yeah you can sit down here most places you can for a hundred thousand you can get a nice meal yeah yeah so that's uh to people who don't know the rupiah conversion that's about seven us dollars five english pounds yeah but a coffee is like Coffee can be three dollars. Yeah, it can be half the price of a yeah. really good meal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because none of us 
I mean, none of us who've come from the West seem to complain about paying for three dollars for a coffee. Yeah, I complain about it. <laughs> yeah, because you're out. Yeah, you're out in the sticks. Where, where coffee... That's why I have a fancy coffee machine at home. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I'm sure that saves you a lot of money. So the culture shock. Yeah, um, we try and make it as comfortable as we can for the people that visit our program, um, but it's not, it's not, it's not fancy. Um, there's there's not air conditioned rooms or anything like that. Um, but we try and design our buildings, our huts with airflows that allows the rooms to stay pretty cool and they do um in terms of like culturally it's i mean it's a great place if you want to come and experience i'm, I'm using this in inverted commas but the real bali um i'm doing that because somewhere like changu or kuta or wherever i think a lot of people would argue that's not that traditional um it's like saying that magaluf in mallorca is traditional spain yeah exactly same thing really um so people like that and they like to be able to come and experience what it's really like and get involved with the community and work with the community every day. Um, I think it's a more wholesome and unique experience. Um, so, so a lot of people come because they want to experience that as well. They want to they want to come on holiday to Bali, but they also want to give something back and have a more meaningful experience. And generally, almost, almost always the, the response is good and people enjoy their experience when they come and visit us. But what are they doing? What, what are they doing? Here? Yeah. If if I'm a volunteer and I want to sign up to come and work with you. Yeah. So, now and, and before you answer that, I want to come because I want to put diving gear on and I want to go mm. underwater and I want to be going mm. over the reefs That's and the I want to appeal. be looking at amazing fish and yeah. I want to be I don't want to be doing what I do almost every day, which is standing in my wellies picking trash picking shit, <laughs> literally, turds and and diapers and plastic out of the stream and then filtering out all the compostable with the should we compost that? No, I don't think we should compost that. I mean, I know it's organic, but well, it's biological, <laughs> right? There's yeah. a big difference between yeah. looking like Jacques Cousteau, yeah, and um, and uh, I can't think of somebody who would be appropriate character for digging shit out all day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not it's not always luxurious. Um, we but we also it, advertising is important. We we make it clear that the volunteers know what they're doing before they come to us, and they're not staying in a five star resort. Uh, in terms of the activities that they do. So yeah, um, I'll talk to you a little bit about our program to give you some background first. So, so like I told you, we're trying to restore an area of reef, right? Um, an area of reef, of reef that previously got destroyed. So um, on either side of this area of reef, we have two really healthy coral reefs. But we've got a big area right in front of where we're based that has, has like I said, no life. So one of the main ways that you can restore life back in an area like this is by building artificial reefs. So artificial reefs, in our case, are, they're about the size of a small table. Um, and they're made of multiple different materials, depending on exactly how we want to do it. Um, Which materials? Tell us. Okay, how, so, how do we make one? So, so we've got a, quite a broad range of materials. The main ways of making them at the moment is made from sand. Mostly sand is the main uh, material, mixed with cement and calcium. Calcium because it allows co uh, corals to settle in the structures better. Um, so the, and the cement binds it? Mm -hmm, the cement how, binds how it. How long do these things last for? In the water? Yeah. Um, indefinite we 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 have no exact data on it but they last for as long as we we're going to need them to last okay. because basically the the idea of an artificial reef well it's got two main purposes it's to bring life back for fish and also for corals and other benthic species when i use the word benthic it means species that live on the bottom so corals sponges etc 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 um these are the two aims of building the artificial reefs um and when we're building them we want life to come back to the area using using these reefs so your your question was how long do they last for? Well, now the artificial reefs are oldest ones anyway, five years old. They don't look like artificial. They're not reefs. artificial. They're not artificial reefs really. They they provide the substrate for the for the benthic life for the corals to grow on, 
but they don't really look like artificial reefs anymore. So um, I'm, we're only five years into our project now, but in tw maybe 10 or 15, 20 years time, we're not going to have what looks like an artificial reef. It will be a it it will be corals growing on what used to be an artificial reef, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does, and and that's really exciting. The idea that so you're dropping these things in. Mm -hmm. Do you say it's the size of a table? Small table. Small table. Yeah, maybe so like, half what half size of this? A bit smaller, maybe um, and maybe maybe a chair would be a more appropriate. Okay. So how many of these are you dropping in in an area? Um, so so we've now built uh, about nine thousand of these structures. Holy schmoly! Yeah, wow. Um, since we started in twenty seventeen, and you dropped all of these in. Mm -hmm. You don't have to get permission from anyone to drop this stuff we, on. We the... we do have to get permission yeah. from the local from the local banjad and from the from the head of the village. So they approve all that. This is all really well supported by the local government. Because you can't do dragnet fishing when there's yeah concrete um, chairs. Yeah. So no, actually, this this area is is fishing free. It's a marine yeah. protected area, locally enforced and um, locally established as well. So um, yeah, really that, important that it's locally established. Yeah. It's, right? Like I said, it's not some some white guy coming along there and telling them what to do, mm. but it's. It's it's the fishermen being educated now and thinking, hey, actually, we want to restore this area. The best way to do that is by giving it its best chance possible. Um, so no fishing is allowed. So if I'm watching the day in the life of, or a year in the life of, yeah, one of these artificial reefs, yeah, tell me from the moment you drop it, mm -hmm. do you? How do you stimulate growth onto it or mm -hmm. activity into it? You put, yeah. you hang out, yeah. put fish food on it or something. <laughs> so I didn't, I, I didn't really answer your last question. So the volunteers build their artificial reefs, right? That's the main activity that volunteers get involved in. Uh, once the once the artificial reefs are dry, each week we deploy them. Deployment means carrying them to the fishing boat, the the, the fishes that we work with. We have a surveyed area each time we do a deployment, and the the reefs go into the sea, um, into this area. So once they're once they've been put off the boat, uh, the next day we'll scuba dive underwater and arrange the structures. So how we many people go under? Ah, uh, it depends how busy we are. So at the moment, uh, it's our high season, and we usually get maybe twenty divers. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So it's, it's quite so a lot. So you've got some safety issues yeah. to be sure of as well. Everyone yeah. dives before they come, or they, they do yeah, a dive course with you. They, if they if they haven't done a dive certification, then they do it with us. Um, but it's it's a prerequisite of being yeah. being a diver at a program. We also have dive masters and dive instructors. So. Yeah, it's safety is a number one priority, and that's important, and it's always, yeah, deeply, deeply considered before we do everything. Um, but it, but it is safe. We're not diving that deep. Mm. They're deployed between five to ten meters. Okay. So it's not super deep diving or anything like that. Um, so the, the structures are deployed with the aim of providing protective space, not only for corals to grow on, but also for fish. So fish are like people. They wanna, they wanna live in an area that's biodiverse. They want, um, I like to compare it to a city. So in a city you have very uh, diverse buildings, you have small buildings, large buildings, etc., etc. And we try and mimic this in the way that we design our artificial reefs. So no reefs are the same. They're not just flat, boring structures like a table. They're, they're rough, they're, they've got unique designs. They've got as much protective space as possible using caves, tunnels, Things like that. So um, get creative when designing. Yeah, these and things. and our volunteers enjoy the the this challenge of um, yeah trying trying to create something that is unique, and we don't want any structure to be the same. So this is quite this is quite a fun activity and something that they like to get involved in. Uh, so once so once they've done this, um, the structures will get arranged underwater. So we'll, so we'll scuba dive and basically place them in a formation that um, optimizes protective space as much as possible. 
So yeah, uh, answering your other question, we don't put fish food on the structures now. <laughs> Although maybe that's not a bad idea. Um, the the fish colonize the structures really quickly. Um, even the next day when we dive, uh, there's fish already coming in. Um, there are some fish that are more specific in the habitat requirements that they need. Some that are very general and not not fussy with with what they want. Um, depends on the species, I guess, um, which I can talk more about later um, from my research, but. From a from a coral point of view, we don't really do coral transplantation. So coral transplantation is quite a commonly used coral restoration method where you take corals from a healthy reef and you you transplant them onto a reef that is not healthy and you're trying to restore. Um, we've done it a little bit and, and it does work, but we've found that the, the structures themselves naturally recruit coral. Um, each, the spawning season in Tianyar is in November each year, usually um, on the full moon every November. So basically what happens is the corals spawn, they release their polyps into the water, and then the polyps will float, and then they will sink down and attach themselves to any hard substrate that they can. So in our case, it's the artificial reefs, and they don't just come from Tianyard. Actually, they can come from wherever, East Bali, West Bali, anywhere in Indonesia. We don't really know, to be honest, where they come from. Um, something that is interesting to look at from a research point of view. Um, but the, the the corals themselves attach themselves to the structures, and naturally, over time, the corals grow on the structures. It just, it's a pretty slow process, and um, our oldest structures now are around five years old. We we've got coral growth up to about ten to fifteen centimeters, um, but they cover the structure very well, and um, almost a hundred percent of the structure is covered by benthic life. So that that's not just corals, but uh, almost everything you can imagine growing in Bali can attach themselves to our structures because they're rough and designed like that. As what you see from day one, obviously it sounds like almost immediately the fish start coming in, but where are they coming in from? Like mm. deeper waters? Or are they, I mean, are they just shoals of homeless fish waiting <laughs> to be rehoused, like you know, yeah. selling big issues? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a good question. Um, where do the fish come from? So we're surrounded by two natural reefs. Um, many of the fish move over from the natural reefs onto our artificial reef. Like I said, there's a... Why would they do that? Though? Okay, so, yeah, it's a really good question, and it's it's quite a complicated question to answer, and we can't give you a 100% correct answer because we don't, we don't know exactly why. Um, but the most likely answer is due to competition. So um, some fish are outcompeted in natural habitats and are looking for somewhere new that perhaps there would be less competition. In some cases, our artificial reefs have higher abundance of fish than the natural reefs. And this is what we found from my research, which is quite surprising and quite interesting. Um, but it may be because the artificial reefs are actually better designed to support fish life than some corals might be, if you can say that the corals are designed. But haven't the fish adapted Mm -hmm. to those corals over millions of years? They have adapted, but they can change easily, or some can anyway. Some are very specific, like I said. There's um, certain species of fish that will only live on certain corals. And, of course, these fish cannot move over to our artificial reef. Others are more general in the way that they can, in where they can live and the way they can survive. And have we found generally prefer the artificial reefs to the natural reefs. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to say the artificial reefs are better than the coral reefs. Um, there will never be a 100% replacement for them. Um, but something we're finding is that there's some species that do prefer to colonize the artificial reef in higher numbers than they do on a natural reef, which, which is an interesting I guess finding. Ultim ultimately, though, they're not artificial, are they, after five years, like mm. you said? Mm. So what you're doing 
is augmenting the bottom. Mm, the basically, the, the, hard, the, the hard substrate for the corals yeah. and the other species to grow on. Um, so yeah, that's correct. Um, but in terms of the design and the shape, it's we try and build it so it's very suitable for a fish to live in. And, and we found that that's really worked. Um, in general, from the research that we've done, we found that the artificial reefs are very well mimicking the natural reefs in terms of their ability to support fish life. Um, 95% similar to the coral reefs in terms of the, the fish that they can support. So that's pretty good. Um, we're, we're very happy with those results and it's great for us to know that the, the work we're doing is, is successful in terms of restoring the, the life back to the area, at least from a fish, from a mobile species point of view. Corals and other benthic species, it's, it's a slower process, obviously. Um, but like I said, it's, it's definitely working and, and we're seeing that these benthic life are being recruited to the area again. So one thing... I was surprised to find out about corals when I started learning more about them is that they're not actually all over the world. There's, mm. there's a, yeah. there's quite a limited amount of it yeah. on the planet. Yeah. yeah, I assume that every country with water had coral reefs. Mm-hmm. It's just not the yeah. case. Yeah, that's you've, right. Yeah. You've got some... I mean, Indonesia is one of the... Uh, has a lot of coral reefs. The Philippines has a lot of coral yeah. reefs. It's all in the coral triangle. It's all in the coral triangle, exactly. Uh, obviously, Australia has the Great Barrier Reef and its, and its problems there. Um... From a perspective of international importance, is where, where does Bali sit mm. in in the coral hierarchy? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I think Indonesia and a lot of uh, regions, low to middle income nations in the coral triangle, receive much less research than perhaps somewhere like Australia or um, other tropical Western areas. Um, for example, in the states. Um, in the in the Florida. Su- yeah, around there, um, the southern southern states and places like this receive a lot more research attention than uh, places like Indonesia, um, which is a shame because actually the biodiversity here is arguably higher and of equal importance um, from an international research point of view. So it's a shame that it receives relatively little. Why do you think that is? Um, why do I think it is? It's it's multiple reasons. I think that there's there's less there's less money for there's less money put into researching these nations. Um, there's less there's less focus put on on researching these nations, and I think generally some of the biggest research organisations and universities that focus on these topics are based in the West, and their research stays in the West, which is a shame. Um, I also think there's. There's some absolutely fantastic researchers, local researchers here that I work with, um, but unfortunately a lot of their work doesn't get out to the international research stage, um, which is why it's great for me to work with them and utilise their knowledge and work together. We've created some publications already which utilises their fantastic skills and knowledge that there's no way I would have been able to do without them. Um, so by combining this work together, it's it, it's bringing their fantastic wealth of knowledge and putting it into international publications and putting this research onto the the global peer-reviewed research stage, um, which for me is important, and getting this research out there to hopefully help support coral reef conservation internationally is is very uh, is, is one of my aims, and it's very important for me. So when I interviewed Steve Box, mm. who is a, he's a bit ahead of you, he's more my age, late 40s, mm-hmm. PhD, he's lived all across Latin America, did some incredible work on bringing together fishing communities to create their no fishing zones, marine protected areas and the likes. I think my first question, it was my first question, I said, so Steve, um, 
and pardon the language, but how <laughs> fucked are we? <laughs> yeah. Or it might have even been more of an imposition of, so we're fucked. <laughs> Discuss. Now you're 20... that's, that's a hard question to answer. Well, now you're, you're 25 <laughs> years old, right? Yeah. And as we, we did a little 10 minute tour of uh, farm here beforehand. And like I said to you, there are day, I'm a hugely optimistic and resilient person. I'm going to write books on resilience in my former life. That was my speciality is training organizations in resilience. So I can handle stuff that most people probably aren't willing to engage with. But there are still days when I've pulled out another massive bag of diapers and 50 pounds of plastic in one single little stream mm. or I'm going down onto the local beach and it's covered in trash and my pleasant dog walk just turns into a, a litter picking walk, mm. another one. Or when I'm out surfing um, and I end up in a, a flotilla of garbage mm. that's yeah. coming out. Every, paddle, sewage, every, every paddle you're touching something. You touch something. Every yeah. single, when I was in Lombok a few months ago, we paddled out and it was like every, my, my board shorts get full. You know mm. the pockets because you, yeah, you just get I mean, full it's trash. Just, yeah. you, can't, you can't fill your board shorts anymore because yeah. one area around you of a meter square. Yeah. So we've got some big problems. Mm -hmm. You're 25 years old. You're clearly a, 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 an activist. You, you're, you're on the back of the tiger, right? And riding it. You're not just watching it from the sidelines behind bars. I'm using that metaphor. The tiger represents you know, the problems that we're facing here. Where do you see the greatest opportunity for making changes in this particular domain? I'm not going to ask you about carbon credits. I'm not going to ask mm -hmm. you about, you know, air pollution. I'm not going to ask you about overpopulation. Mm. Here, when it comes to coral and it comes to... Also, we haven't touched on it yet, but we'll talk about it. Plastic pollution and the mm -hmm. because I know you've got a speciality or an understanding of that. Where do, you, where do you see that we can make the most impact in the next how many years? Mm -hmm. um, so my, my work is... My my experience is working on a local scale, so I cannot talk about it from a from a governmental point of view. But from from my experience, working with communities is is the way forward through education, through direct activism work, through uh, empowering them to create change. That is, in my in, from my point of view, the way forward in terms of generating real meaningful change. Um, so, for for example. Like I gave the example earlier of the marine protected area, we have persuaded the fishermen to create this marine protected area, this locally enforced, locally established marine protected area, through education and through talking them to them about how important it is to restore this reef. It's not, hey guys, you need to restore this reef, please, please create an MPA. It's okay, let's talk about it. Let's bring on all the stakeholders' point of views and try to work with the communities as best we can to agree some agree on the best ways that we can do this. And like I said, this has really worked. We've now restored an area of reef that is previously previously dead, previously nothing, to a, to a reef that's basically mimicking a natural coral reef. Um, what's missing on it? Anything? What's missing? Yeah, is there anything missing? Um, I like the idea that it's fully restored. Uh, what's missing? It hasn't, I, I can't use the word fully restored. Like I said earlier, it's 90. It's yeah, I use that. I'm not, I'm not saying you did. <laughs> the research, the research <laughs> I've done has shown it's 95% similar in the So there's, there's 5% species. Yeah. That, what's that then? Um, we rarely see turtles on mm. the artificial reef. Um, they quite like the corals, I guess. <laughs> um, what else is missing? Um, there's certain fish species such as clownfish that need very specific anemones and corals to grow on. Um, so there are there are some species that are missing, but um, yeah, w w I, 
we're doing a pretty good job in terms the communities are doing a pretty good job in in what they're doing and hopefully that can inspire more similar work around the island and perhaps even internationally to see that these projects really do work and it's not only a project that can protect the environment but also a project that can provide livelihoods for local people as well so now our local people are given new jobs as dive guides as tourism workers and I, I know like I said the word ecotourism is um is a bit iffy and a bit controversial but in this case the community have come together to restore a reef and at the same time create good jobs for themselves well, so, how much does it cost to build one of these reefs I should have asked that before uh each each structure itself costs about 10 US dollars is that all mm yeah. Wow. And where do you get your funding from for the whole uh, program? Volunteer donations, international donations. We work with multiple different um, international companies that give us donations as well. Um, but yeah, we're, 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 we're funded on a donation basis. Um, now it's the high season. We get a lot of a lot of support from international volunteers, which is how our, how our project is sustainable, which is why the pandemic was hard for us because uh, most of our funding... Mm, was was up. lost, yeah, dried up throughout the pandemic, um, and things got pretty slow. So you're not getting anything from the Balinese government, or the no, we do as well. Um, right now, not right now, we're not, but we have got great support from the, especially from the local government. Um, so yeah, we, we they've been hurting, but they, I, I, my understanding of the current governor is he, he has his, I mean, he's ensuring that Bali by 2030 is free of all petrol engines mm. when it comes to bikes. You know, they've mm. raised. I think they've got a loan of about 700 million from the US mm. to put in battery charging stations all over mm. Bali. You know, he's he's progressive. He's yeah. got an eye on Agree. turning Bali into, he doesn't want the expansion of Kuta, even though that's where all the money comes in. Mm -hmm. They want to make this place somewhere to be proud of from an ecological mm -hmm. perspective. Whilst also balancing the fact that people need livelihoods. You can't mm -hmm. have a starving, out-of-work population. Mm -hmm. right? Of course. Very difficult balance. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes it is a very to. very difficult balance yeah. easy for us to do our bits yeah right because yeah. we're not in control of other people's mm -hmm. livelihoods yeah and, and it's easy to criticize that's what that's one thing i've seen it's, it's very easy to criticize when um you're not you're not in the positions of the people that have to make these decisions and compromise livelihoods and people's having people giving people food on their plates so yeah it's a, it's a tough one um but from my experience, these these projects are getting more support, and and from a government level and from a local level as well, and that's a glimmer of hope in amongst all all of the trash in the ocean. It's a very <laughs> pragmatic view that you, your position on this, which is start and in fact continue at the small community level, mm -hmm. rather than trying to get some massive policy change put in that mm -hmm. prevents single use plastic, which as yeah. we know is not going to happen in a developing country. That yeah, people can't afford to buy. One of, this is one of the things I hadn't even considered before coming here. When I spoken to the people that I work with, Balinese people, and I say, instead of buying all these little packaged things that you get every day, you know, like two sachets of Nescafe, just buy a big glass mm -hmm. pot and like, yeah. you can't afford it's not, it. It's unaffordable, yeah. Same with shampoo. Or, the shampoo. Yeah, we yeah, buy yeah. it when we have the money in our back pockets. Mm -hmm. They don't have a savings mm -hmm. account. And that, that's why it's really important to emphasize, especially as some people like ourselves that are living in Bali that have that um what's the word that have that um I guess upper hand or that privilege privilege that's what I'm looking for thank you <laughs> I didn't want to say it too soon because yeah, I, I, was like, I assumed it was going to be privilege yeah that's what we, I'm looking for because uh, we do it's easy to criticize and 
it's very important to put yourself in local people's positions and, and not jump to harsh conclusions about things like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you're raising a family mm -hmm. and you live week to week on your wages and you cannot, if you buy a big pot of X over here versus those tiny little things that it means you also can't afford to buy all this other stuff mm -hmm. that you're budgeting so tightly on to feed your children mm -hmm. or to make sure they're well or to give them the pencils for school that they need or like we live in a different world where we can say you know we'll just take our refillable copper buddhist blessed pots to <laughs> whole foods because they now are yeah. no longer using oh yeah. no whole foods is using bamboo packaging for that 12 dollars packet of sausages yeah yeah exactly you know like 12 dollars yeah. here yeah. is what the whole family's surviving on mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. a day mm -hmm. exactly yeah so yeah it's not a it, 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 there's a massive disconnect between the western world and how we look at developing countries mm -hmm. and when you live in it as closely as you do and myself here in this farming community you start to really begin to appreciate mm -hmm. the, the that disconnect and the problems that it causes yeah agreed um so i looked at your paper mm. that which um, one the one on that was published in um well there's there's the one that had seven points to it which was the increased designations of official marine mm -hmm. protected areas oh yeah yeah creating um, a network of marine protected mm -hmm. areas, reducing marine plastic pollution, mm -hmm. artificial reef construction, ecotourism, Bali, um, increased engagement in global science, mm -hmm. and then uh, developing more monitoring programs. Yeah. But the one thing that stuck out for me was mm -hmm. the socio-economic benefits of reefs. Mm. And so we've talked about, we know why it's important, right, for the ecology we know why it's important for nature to develop these things um but if you're having a no fishing zone and these areas are, are protected there is actually a benefit isn't there to fishermen mm. outside of those there is zones it's, it's called spillover well. effect spillover right so spillover refers to exactly what you said the, the indirect benefit of having a marine protected area that basically because an area is restored this is a protected area for the fish perhaps it's a nursery or perhaps it's it's an area where fish congregate, but of course they leave these protected areas as well. And this is not just small research, this is internationally large-scale peer-reviewed research that has shown um, spillover effect really does benefit local fishers. So that highlights to me and to the international research uh, organization, sorry, international research community that developing these sort of marine protected areas not only has a localized benefit but to the ecology but also to the local people that uh, depend on these species for their survival so yeah um it really does work do you eat fish uh not really which is a good question um i've grown up as a vegetarian so um i do not but i don't see an issue with it if it's caught locally and it's um caught sustainably i don't of course i don't agree with large-scale um fish trawlers that i'm sure everybody listening to this podcast now agrees with and understands and unless you have stocks in large-scale fish yeah yeah maybe not then. companies so. um so from that point of view i choose not to because i don't know where the fish is coming from um but like i said i have no issue with eating locally sourced sustainable fish sustainably caught fish it's a, it's a so I've been a fisherman all my life. I okay. grew up 
as a kid growing up in a council estate, it's one of the few things that you yeah. can afford to go and do yeah. and get in nature. Yeah. You know, you're fishing rod and some worms yeah. and away you go. Yeah. But even as a kid, it, it was a, for me, it was a very, I was a vegetarian for 12 years, in fact, but mm-hmm. it, it was a very violent activity. Mm-hmm. And that's course fishing, putting the fish back. I became a fly fisherman years yeah. later. Anytime I'd catch a trout, I'd keep it because that's an expensive fish yeah. and it tastes delicious. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, we went fishing when we first got here in the first week, my son and I, and we went out and we caught some big mackerel and everything. And, you know, it, it, it's a, it is a, a violent mm. activity, <laughs> even as you're unhooking the fish. Yeah. And in the majority of cases, you drop it there in an ice bucket and you let the poor thing bleed out. <laughs> it either bleeds out or it suffocates. Yeah, right. Okay. I typically will put a knife straight through the skull because I right, think okay. if you're going to kill it, you yeah. kill it quickly yeah, and cleanly because yeah, I'm yeah. going to eat it. But um, there, I, I watched the video Seaspiracy. Right, okay. Oh, which you've me, seen. Don't right? get me started. Well, <laughs> I, I am going to get started because I, I okay. wanted to talk to you about it. Okay, okay. Because I asked Steve Jobs, uh, Steve, Steve Jobs, I didn't ask Steve Jobs anything, uh, Steve Box. Okay, I'd be interested to hear what he well. said about it. Well, you can yeah. listen to the podcast and yeah. you know what he says about it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the, uh, obviously, it was a very emotive mm-hmm movie it was it was it was it seemed to me a build-up to push uh, a vegan agenda now mm-hmm. i don't mind that actually mm-hmm. i actually think we should all eat a lot less animals and eat mm-hmm. a lot less fish um we eat fish maybe once a week here in my family i actually prefer to eat oysters mm-hmm. and which are incredibly sustainable mm-hmm. agreed yeah um and they're also one of my favorite foods so my you know if i had a last meal i was on death row i would actually have oysters as a last meal so it's an easy one yeah for me um i'm not all that i don't eat tuna i don't want the mercury in it i don't eat mm. fatty m- um mackerel because i don't want the mercury in it and all the other pollutants anyway um i'm sort of semi agreed with using media to create mm. as much change as possible mm-hmm. even yeah. if it isn't necessarily accurate mm-hmm. um but you can't go misleading people right yeah that was a very one-sided argument yeah exactly yeah um what where do you see that something like that has a has a place in this mm-hmm. in this push that we're all working towards to make a better world, to save the environment. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what was your view of it? What's your yeah? So, it's pretty controversial um, amongst experts, no doubt. Yeah, more than, more yeah. than it is amongst the layman like myself. Yeah, um, I guess the most important thing for me to say is that the the vision and the the thing that the documentary is trying to achieve, their overall aim, is good. And I support that. There's a huge, huge, huge issue with the unsustainability of the global fishing industry. Um, and I don't think anybody can argue with that. Um, so so overall, I think that the, the, the documentary itself was good <laughs> and it was helpful. And it definitely shed a lot of light onto the issues that perhaps the general public didn't know about. So that's important. I didn't like the way that the documentary criticised a lot of organisations that are doing great work. Um, it really did, didn't it? It, it really did. a lot yeah. of them at the end. Um, I put myself in that point of view. They could have come and picked on me and the work mm. that we're doing. We work with fishermen, so they could have easily come come and targeted us and the, the organisations that they did target kind of did similar stuff to the, the what we do. So I didn't like that and I didn't like the way that they also criticize small scale fishing industries as well which from my point of view i don't have an issue with and from my point of view can be really sustainable if it is well managed Uh, admittedly sometimes it isn't but if it is well managed it can be sustainable and i think that 
the overall message of if you eat fish, you're killing the ocean, which is kind of what they kind of what they did. Um, I don't agree with. Um, I think it was more that if you're eating fish, you're a bastard and yeah, you should yeah. burn in ten thousand hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go vegan, or you, or you deserve to oh, die. You, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. So, yeah, I kind of sit in the middle. I think, um, which I think probably is what a lot of marine scientists and marine experts would say. Um, I know some people that hated it and despised it, and I know some people that are quite supportive of it as well. So I think I sit. sit I'm going to try and interview the guy that, but I've got a, an angle oh, really? to try. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll have to watch it again. I did watch it the one time. But... Yeah. I got pretty angry when I was watching it and turned okay. it off a few times. And then, oh yeah, quite a lot of people are asking me about this. So I think I need to go back and watch it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a good watch. Well, it's an interesting watch. Um, I won't let my kids watch it. And that's all, that's a, uh, my kids have been around. So I've, I've, I've hunted wild animals, deer and goats. Mm -hmm. My kids have watched me skin those animals. They've also come out hunting with me. They've come out fishing. They've watched me kill fish and uh, mm -hmm. and the likes. They're not. I'm not scared of showing them death. I think it's really important that they're exposed to it at a young age and understand the cycle of life. Mm. But I won't let them watch it because it's just too much of a too much of a propaganda piece. Mm. I don't yeah. want my kids at that point having such a one sided. Yeah, and it is very one sided, like baby. you said. Um, yeah. There's there's a lot of better there's better ways to educate your kids about about these issues I think. So it must be for you a delight, even though you're running teams of volunteers and you're taking on this these big challenges. But you also have a pretty amazing amazing terrible description, but mm -hmm. a very compelling must be very satisfying work to be underwater, surrounded by nature and life on a regular basis. One of the reasons that I love this farm so much, I can lose an hour or two just looking at the new life in the pond and mm -hmm. watching the plants coming up in areas where previously there weren't any. We've only been going six weeks without without pesticides and herbicides. And the species, I don't know all the species, I've got a, nature, uh, a plant identification app. Mm -hmm. The species that are coming up, and there's now we've got dragonflies. I've counted three different types of dragonflies. Wow, we've got nice. butterflies coming. This is six weeks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like nature wants to, it wants to thrive. Yeah. It wants to come back. I mean, come back. It wants its rightful position as to where yeah. it was before. It just needs the chance. So I can lose myself there just on a piece of mm -hmm. land. So, yeah, yeah. For you, I mean, what's it like every day going down to these things, mm -hmm. these reefs, and seeing it coming back? Mm. Must yeah, be yeah. I'm constantly shocked and also constantly humbled by how nature can restore and how nature does come back to an area when you give it a chance. Um, these the reefs that we've deployed now really have brought life back to an area that was previously previously dead. Um, and I think I'll ne that that luxury of being able to go down and look at it and and see the change it will never that luxury will never wear off you know I, that's always going to be special for me to see that um i feel lucky to be able to do this and have an opportunity to try my best to restore nature and do the best i can to bring life back and um yeah. Yvonne Schunard, who's one of my all-time favorite business heroes yeah i mean i when I lived in the US, I would go in Patagonia stores just because it, it allowed me to feel closer to nature. Right? <laughs> right. Like I felt like I was, I, I got lucky enough to actually work with Patagonia and do some coaching with them and some management leadership program Amazing. with them. Yeah. And, and, and everything that you see on the front is not even as 
genuine and authentic as it is at the back end right you go really? into their okay. you go into their system into their or into their organization in ventura they are more than they claim they are mm. they're actually quite modest about what they claim mm -hmm. to be they at the back end it is all running exactly like you would want it to be any company mm -hmm. in the world to be running you know they they walk their their uh their talk but shunard says um and i've read let my people go surfing three times now it's my mm. it's my manifesto for how to do business. And he says you can't protect what you don't love. Is it's a book written by the It's uh yeah, so Ivan Shunas is the, the founder of Patagonia. Right. Yeah, okay, okay. I he's heard a, he's a climbing bum. Right, okay. No, in the nineteen sixties he was one of the the main ascensionists of El Capitan. So as a climber, he's a historical hero okay, of, of right, mine. Right. Um but uh, uh only when I became an entrepreneur and a businessman did that move from being wowed by his surfing and climbing exploits mm -hmm. uh, to them being worried by his business exploits because mm -hmm. patagonia has has been true to this desire to create a business based on protecting the planet first he's always put the planet over profit mm -hmm. and, it's, and he as he rightly points out in multiple anecdotes in or cases in the book by putting the even when they put up their the price of their t-shirts by 30 percent because they came became the world's first t-shirt supplier of all organic cotton mm. everyone said this is crazy you can't increase the price by 30 percent mm -hmm. no one's going to buy it they sold out right okay. again and again and again yeah. so every time they've said don't buy this jacket they're not trying to do some inverse psychological <laughs> process they're yeah. like you don't need it right? yeah right right people it sells out mm -hmm. he appeals to the conscience in people who still want nice things mm -hmm. and they make incredible equipment as well you know by the way i don't still work for patagonia so this isn't some marketing <laughs> piece on there i was getting to a point but yvonne Schunard in his book and i encourage you to read mm -hmm. it, let my people go surfing uh, he says you can't protect what you don't love mm -hmm. right nobody's going to care unless ab about putting the effort in unless you really do feel compelled unless you are connected to it unless you love it and um, that for me is it, that very simple idea is what drives me with as a father mm -hmm. teaching my kids to love nature and it's also what drives me with uh, I mean I, I say this without trying to sound patronizing but educating local farmers in better ways like because they do love their rice paddy fields they do love their subaks there is a but they but there's this disconnect between what they love or what they care about and also seeing the problems. Mm. It's like they can't see the mm -hmm. problems because it's too new to them. Yes. Or maybe it's too overwhelming to them. Point I'm getting to here is when you have all of these people coming in, you've got 50 volunteers right now, you're dealing with a lot of different characters and a lot, but obviously they're all compelled to help nature. How many of these people do you think are coming to do this kind of work because they're because they want to tick a box. Mm. They want to talk about their dinner parties. They <laughs> want to put it on their CVs. And how many of them are doing it because they fucking love nature? Mm, good question. Good question. What do you get a sense of from the amount of... Because 50, 50, like 50 volunteers is a big enough case study mm. of characters, of, of mm. behavior, of of motivations. Yeah. To really get some insight into like the people who are being activists in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I say it's pretty split. You get some people that really do care. They, they're giving up their time, incurring costs to come somewhere to the other side of the world and make a real change to the environment. And 
it's great to see how how much time as well people are willing to spend with us. We've just said goodbye to a volunteer who's been with us for six months. She spent six months of her life helping us build reefs in North Bali on her own dollar. Yeah, yeah. Um, She's going back to get a job. Yeah, basically, <laughs> actually going back to study. But um, so that is it's amazing to see how genuinely motivated they are to come and help. Not everybody's like that. I think quite often the motivation is I want to come to Bali. Um, Bali seems like a great place to go on holiday, but I don't just want to sit in a sunbed for two weeks. So I want to maybe spend a week or two volunteering and the other half of my holiday maybe they sitting on a their, sunbed. Or, maybe they can get their parents or businesses to pay if they come and do a week Yeah, I think it might be a bit like that as well. Um, the point I'm getting is that it's, it's, probably, it's pretty split. Um, but I mean, if, if that's okay though. Uh, we're not we're not asking mm. that everybody comes to us has to have a deep passion and knowledge of the marine for the marine environment. Um, as long as they have a a good work ethic and a, a desire to make a change and to make a difference, that that's that's all that's all we ask for, really. Yeah. Look, the reason I ask that question mm-hmm. is because I live in a bubble of people who are so passionate mm-hmm. about fixing these problems. Mm-hmm. All of our team at Laconic, our, the business that we're in. People like Grace Smith, who introduced mm. us, they live and breathe this stuff every day where mm. they're looking for solutions. They're looking for solutions and, they, and they'll get their hands dirty and they'll stand in the stream with you and pull out the dirty diapers and all the other unspeakables. Um, but so I live in that bubble and I, a lot of people in the environmental, ecological activism world live in that bubble. And then you look around at the people who really don't give a shit. I mean, I still see people now, Western people, dropping garbage mm. in the streets yeah. in Bali. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. what? And I'll always pick it up and say, you drop something. Yeah, that makes I don't me, care how big or tattooed they are. That makes me 10 times angrier. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. The, the disconnect. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so they're, they're, we're talking, there's massive ranges, right? You've got Donald Trump and his cronies who want to drill oil and gas in, in Alaska and God knows mm-hmm. where else. And you've then got the other extremes of people who think that we should all go back to just walking barefoot and not having any mm-hmm. any stuff and then there's people like ourselves who live in the modern world i mean i do like patagonia clothes you know i do buy things that come in plastic even though we recycle them i've got a 500 cc motorbike that is unnecessary but it's my passion mm. and i even like smoking cigars once in a while <laughs> and buying quite expensive bourbon you know when my friends can bring it in from the u.s yeah right. <laughs> you know? like i i want to live in the world and also create solutions to yeah. the problems yeah maybe that's maybe i'm just trying to offload some western privileged guilt but i don't think so it's more about my absolute love of of nature um and so really my you know you get real good insights with all these people that come in to see how how likely it is that we're going to fix these problems mm. you know you yeah okay There is a filtering system. The fact that these people are coming to volunteer in the first place shows they have a certain degree of compassion Mm. and compulsion. Mm. They're not the people who come here just to get pissed and drink and get wild. But uh, I'm sort of building up to a finish here. Um, And that is, from your perspective, you've only got 25 years on the planet, but you've probably seen more people's Um, direct interaction involvement with the problems that we face both locally and globally Um, what is your perspective on the future from your experience with the people that you are seeing day in day out and the solutions that you're seeing 
as well as the problems. Mm. Future in terms I want of... You, I want your big picture vision. So uh, do you intend to have kids one day? Oh, uh, yeah. Because I, I so. that's, always a, that's yeah. always a good signifier well, of whether yeah. somebody sees there's hope for the future, right? Oh, right, yeah. The, pe- the people that don't want to have kids because they don't want to bring their Typically, kids up. Typically, I've yeah. met yeah, me plenty too. of people who don't want to have yeah. kids because they're too scared of the future. Um, I don't take that view. I want grandchildren. Mm. Right. But I want my grandchildren to go, God, granddad was a real activist. You know, there was a yeah. time when garbage used to be thrown out into the ocean. Can you yeah, imagine? Yeah. Um, I share a pretty similar mindset. Um, I find my mum always says something to me, which is, is quite wise. She says, worry what you need to worry about. Um, but I'm using that. I'm using that because you can only, and I said this to you earlier in our conversation too, you have to take each day as it comes. And if you think too much about about all the problems in the world and trying to solve every single problem, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to find solutions to everything. Um, I've seen that solutions, the solutions that we're trying to provide do work. Um, the challenge now is getting the world to care about it and getting people to be motivated to make a change. Um, do you have an idea of how to do that? Another seaspiracy? <laughs> um, do I have an idea how to do it? Okay, so from my experience, just getting people to go out there and, and just try something. Don't be afraid of if things don't work. I've been overwhelmed in a positive way by how great and how supportive people are of the work that we're trying to do um, and how it, how we, we have received help from people all around the world. Um, and that really humbles me. And I'm sure that this isn't something magical and special that we're doing. It's just people trying to make a change and, and that, that is well supported and there's so many people in the world that perhaps have an idea but they don't know where to start with it or they don't know what to do um, and I would encourage people just to get out there and try try your best to make a change and it doesn't matter if it doesn't work because you'll have another opportunity to try something again next time um, if you live in fear the whole time of trying to do something that oh I don't know that's a bit scary or I don't think I'm going to be able to do that then nothing's going nothing's to happen in the world so People need to get out of their comfort zone and try their best to um, be the change that the world needs. I think Yvonne Schoenard would be delighted if he said that and probably (laughs) did about 30 years ago. (laughs) Zach, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation Uh, with you. Before we finish and um, get out of this room, which we turned the aircon off because Zach's not used to the cold and now it's turned into an oven. (laughs) It it felt like a fridge. It was a fridge and now I I can see little beads of sweat starting to to form. That might also be the strong coffee we had earlier. Yeah. Um, Where can people get involved? Where can people find you? The website, et cetera. Mm. And do you have personal Twitter, Instagram Mm -hmm. accounts, all that sort of stuff? I do, yeah. Maybe maybe I can share them with you afterwards. Yeah. But um, our organization is North Bali Reef Conservation, uh, which is found on Facebook and google and instagram i have a twitter page for my own research which is zach z bokes research um perhaps i can uh, share that with you and you can put it in the in yeah the, absolutely they'll go in the show notes um but yeah it's been great chatting with you i really enjoyed this this quite broad and interesting conversation i'm going to take you to the back to dig some garbage out right <laughs> take, take dig some poo out and nappies <laughs> yeah. out of the ground yeah. exactly looking forward awesome. to it thanks for your time mate yeah cheers, cheers. bye